Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Hellraiser Podcast. I'm Peter, this is Phil. Hello, Phil. Hello, everyone. We've got quite a special one for you today. We've got an interview with Nicholas Vince, who plays the Chatterer in Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2, and also Kinski in Nightbreed. And he's done some writing as well, which we'll tell you all about in this interview. Now, it was quite a long interview, so we split it into two parts. So here is part one of our interview with Nicholas Vince. So we're here today having a chat with Nicholas Vince. Hello, Nick. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Good, good. So we're going to just talk through your professional career now, I think. Okay. So let's go right back to the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) How far back? It's a very good place to start, they tell me. Yes. (laughs) So when did you first get the the bug, the performing bug? According to my mother, when I was around about six years old, she said that um, I... And I literally was about six years old, I think, and we were watching some Highland bagpipes. It must, I have no idea where we were, because um, I really don't remember the episode. Um, but they, they were playing, and they were playing a jaunty tune. I immediately got up and started dancing and grabbed the nearest girl. <laughs> um, and, and just started dancing, really. Um, and then it was in... Through an English teacher, a lady called Mary Salomon, and I was about 11 years old, and she invited me to take part in the local amateur society production. It was a Dickensian evening, um, and I just played all the young Dickensian characters, Pip, uh, a young Dickens, um, had a whale of a time, um, and this was in Horsham in Sussex where I grew up. Uh, it was a company called Theatre 48, which I th- think is still going. Um, the, the, the extraordinary thing about growing up in West Sussex was there are an awful lot of amateur societies. I don't know if it's still true, but back then there were more amateur societies in West Sussex than in any, any other county. Um, so there was lots of opportunities. Um, and that kind of just kind of went on from there, just doing amateur productions. I think by the time I'd gone to a drama school, I'd done about 200 Oh, wow. Yeah, it literally <laughs> was. We sat down and counted it out. You know, I was doing three or four um, little bits and bobs. It, it, it was just every spare moment was spent doing amateur dramatics. So when it came to the, the time to decide what to do with your with yourself professionally, when you mm. went to drama school, was there any other options for you? Or was it always that was the only thing you wanted to do? I basically made the deal with my parents, which I think a lot of people make is, you know, Try a sensible, real job first. <laughs> see how, and then <clears throat> see how you get on. Um, part of the deal was there was also I had to have uh, some major surgery done on my face. Um, I was born what is known as being undershot, which is basically where the lower jaw protrudes in front of the upper jaw. Um, so. Yes, that doesn't work on radio. Um, <laughs> but basically, yeah, my lower teeth came in front of my upper teeth. Um, that meant I was going to be in hospital for a couple of weeks because um, it really was major surgery. Um, so I went and joined the tax office. It was supposed to be for about a year. It turned out to be about three years untold. Um, I had to wait for the operation uh, to happen. So, yeah, I was in hospital for a couple of weeks and so on. And basically, mum and dad had said, you know, give that a, you know, give that a try. 
if at the end of that period you still want to do acting, we'll support you. And, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what happened. You know, they mm-hmm. got into Mountview Theatre School um, and they supported me all the way. Yeah, that's brilliant. And was Simon Bamford there when you were there? Did you meet him yes. at Mountview? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, Simon, <clears throat> it was a big intake that year, I remember. Um, so Simon and I were at the school at the same time. We weren't in the same class. Um, and when we got to our third year, they they split the uh, the year in half, and Simon was in the other half. We went to Sweden for three weeks to do a tour, uh, and we toured West Side Story in Sweden, plus Charlie's Aunt. West Side Story, Charlie's Aunt, there may have been a third play, I can't remember what it was, but it's definitely those two. Um, but Simon went to America, and I know Simon's talked about this, he, they took, oh, what a lovely war hmm. to um, mm. America during, wow. during the Falklands crisis. Um, and he said it was really interesting, you know, yeah. reaction uh, God, th- yeah. that they got during that time. Um, so uh, yes, that's where I met Simon. We um, we get, you know, became good friends. And what did you do straight away when you left Mountview? Did you get acting work straight away? Or? No, not at all. Um, it took about a year or so before I became. I managed to get my equity card. I got my equity card doing a play called Fire Dragon, which was in a place called Redditch. And this was advertised as a rock and roll pantomime, uh, mm-hmm. I remember, and I was um, ASM understudy um, and, and small. Oh, I played the Fire Dragon. Uh, yeah, it was ASM and played the Fire Dragon. That's what I remember playing that. And I had that's a, the title role. That's yeah. the title role. It was, yeah, yeah but not... Not, not that it's the title role, but it was in a big costume. Oddly enough, it was a dragon, and then I came out from the dragon and sang my "I'm a Fire Dragon," and that was I had one number. Um, the lead actor was a guy called David Easter, who went on to do a Channel Five soap opera, the name of which I can't remember. He was a really, really cool guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, now that, that, that's Redditch. Um, Funnily enough, if you read Sex, Death and Starshine from the Books of Blood, mm-hmm. Clive based the show, based the story in Redditch, not because I'd been in the, not it was completely oh, coincidental, okay. it was because mm. the dog company had played that theatre and okay. so on. And I remember Redditch was a really strange place. It didn't have a bookshop. It was a, a new town outside Birmingham and it just didn't have a, you know, the theatre was the only thing that was there that was kind of artistic. Um, and it had a very high suicide rate at the time. Oh. It, was, it, was, it was a really strange town. A wow. uh, really strange town. Um, so wh- when was it that you got involved with... When was it that you met Clive and got involved? It was it, whilst I was at drama school. Yeah. Um, so it was... I must have been in my third year or soon thereafter... And basically, I got invited to a party and met Clive at the party uh, and got on really well. He asked me to come and do some modelling for him, um, which I did. And eventually, uh, some of the stuff in the modelling I, uh, I did I ended up on the covers of the Books of Blood, mm. which Clive illustrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the original, but the later uh, version. Um, so when you say modelling, was it 
posing for him to create art. Yes, absolutely. It was, it was both. I mean, he basically, I used to pose for him. He would uh, take photographs okay. and take reference photographs, mm-hmm. um, which is how, in fact, Mm-hmm. I've modelled for Clive, I've modelled for John Bolton, I've modelled for Dave McKean, mm. and they all worked in the same way, basically, right. take, you know, take reference photographs. And, um, well, it's easier than you standing there for five hours. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, when the, first, I think when the first of it, he did, he did, he did, he did a study of it, and Clive did, did a sketch of me, and I think that was the only time he worked from life. Uh, but otherwise, it was, it was photographs. Right, and, and when, you, when you first sort of met Clive, obviously you became friends, you said, yeah, but like, yeah. what was, um, what was your impression of, of, of him, you know, what, what kind of person was he, why did you become friends, I guess? Uh, I he's a really nice guy, yeah. he's a really, really, I was listening to, saying, you know, I was listening to uh, the previous podcast that we did, and you said, this is just really nice people, he's a really <laughs> nice guy, he surrounds himself with really nice people, um, he's a very intelligent man. Um, and very erudite, very interesting, has a really weird take on the world in in some way. You know, he's really weird. Um, he's got such a vast imagination, yeah, and he's yeah. always interested and interesting. You know, and he, we used to go around, do some modelling for him, and then we just used to chat and talk and just had these most amazing conversations, I remember, you know, talking about sex, death and starshine, everything, you know, mm-hmm. covered everything. Um, and, I, you know, he, that was just part of the fun of knowing Clive. Yeah. Uh, you know, he is just a very interesting person, obviously. Mm. Did he talk about the short stories he was writing that would then go on to become the Books of Blood? I... I don't um, I don't think specifically. I was I was thinking about this the other day, and I think when they first came out, I remember reading them and thinking, "Oh, there's an idea here." I remember talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. So not specifically, you know, he, he he would obviously never say, "Oh, I'm going to use this in a story," but he was talking. You know, he was. There is one story I remember him talking about, and that's Pig Blood Blues. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming across, when we were there, he was, he was in his study and he um, picking up a book, which was, it wasn't the Ladybird Book of Pigs, but it was something similar. It was just a very basic book mm-hmm. on, uh, on pig husbandry. Um, and all about pigs. And, he, and I remember him saying, uh, giving me the good tip, if you want to research something, go to the children's section first. <laughs> because that's the place to start. Yeah. You know, you know, and he, oh, get the basics. Yeah, get the yeah. basics. And in those days, he was obviously going up to the local library um, in Crouch End and getting stuff uh, there. So there was, I, I do remember there being piles of library books uh, and so on for research. Wow. So um, we know about the the dog company, Clive's yeah. Theatre Company, which you weren't actually a, a part of. Right? That's right. No, I I, 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 I never acted. Did you guys. see their productions? Yes. And I, so what were they like? Because nowadays, because it was theatre, and obviously we can't see any of that. It's, yeah, it's fascinating yeah, to think yeah. what they might have been like. I, what did I see? I saw Frankenstein in Love and The Secret Life of Cartoons. Now Frank, Now they were done as part of an evening's entertainment. Um, Ollie Parker was playing Frankenstein, and I, the part of the play is where he 
takes off his skin or there's a skin <laughs> there's a skin figure mm-hmm. um, and I remember this skin this human skin being flung across the stage but I also remember I'm sure it was Doug playing the bunny in Secret Life of Cartoons and this was just the most frenetic piece that I'd, I'd seen um, it was I don't think it was much more than half an hour or 45 minute piece um, and it was done like a cartoon it was done like a Max Fleischer cartoon mm-hmm. you know, it, it, was, it had that kind of pace really worked and both were extraordinary pieces obviously um, and I remember asking Clive to look at all his, his scripts and he gave me a history of the devil to read because I, I didn't get to read you know, didn't mm. get to see them I, I never got to see the history of the devil, but I remember reading the script. And again, just extraordinary stuff. Really, yeah. really extraordinary stuff. Do you think that at that time you had a feeling that Clive was going to go on to something quite special? Because I know it's weird because you, obviously this is your life, so at the time you met him, he was your friend, yeah. but we're all looking back now going, wow, you know, he wrote all these books yeah, and he did all yeah, this great yeah, stuff. Yeah. Do you think you had any sense of that at the time or was it a complete sort of like, wow, I think, you know? Well, I think it, because it, his career really started taking off fairly soon after I'd met him. Uh-huh. Um, it was, you know, the Books of Blood were published not like long after. I remember going around to his place for a, um, a party, a launch party. Um, and it... You know, I remember just being terribly impressed by the fact that he was a published author, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and, and the, you know this stuff, and the, there were these these books of blood, and such books of blood, um, really amazing stories. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think it's hard to say, particularly as you're asking me to think about over twenty five years ago. <laughs> what did I think at the time? I remember as things gone on, went on over the years, over the, the course of the three movies, the two Hellraiser, the Nightbreed movie, um, I was hanging out with the most amazing bunch of people. I was hanging out with Clive Barker, Neil Gaiman, Peter Atkins. Um, and I remember just going around to Clive's place when he was living up in Harley Street at the time and just hanging out with these guys, mm. you know, and... and and, and just thinking, wow, I'm just so fortunate. You know, mm-hmm. these these guys are extraordinary, um, and are doing some really good stuff. Yeah, it, you, you don't think of your friends like that. You just wish them well. Yeah, yeah. I think mean, you know this is what you know. Like you, you wish any artist well. He's like all my actor mates, and and so on. you just want them to to succeed or whatever it is. That, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. So I mean, speaking about that, so you. Clive then asked you to be in Hellraiser. Yes. From that. And to come at it from an actor's perspective, because as we've spoken of before, me and Peter are actors as well. Yeah. And it's very much like you get a job. Yes. And it's a job. Yeah. And you don't know what's going to happen with it, obviously. So when you got the Hellraiser, when Clive asked you to be in it, what, what did you feel about it at that time, sort of? Your young actor yes, self. <laughs> yes, like a little movie. God, this is amazing. I mean, you know, it's you know because I'd done some. I had done some theatre. I hadn't really done any TV. I'd certainly not done any movies. Mm. Um, Clive really worked hard to get us in. I, you know, I, I think to you know as to be cast um, 
like that. It was a you know, it was a low budget movie. We weren't going to be paid anything more than minimum, um, as far as I remember. I can't. You know, I think it was just equity minimum, which is decent whack. Um, being in a movie, uh, it, it was just extraordinary, mm. and I just regarded myself as incredibly fortunate. Yeah. yeah. If I must go back a little, sure. Um, Clive has said that one of the reasons he wanted to write and direct Hellraise was because of the two films he'd written previously that were made into films that he didn't like, mm. um, Underworld and Rawhead Rex. Had yes. you seen those? Uh, no, I never got to see them, um, along with a lot of other people. Uh, <laughs> I remember seeing Stills, I remember him talking about it, I remember him talking to me when he first started talking about Hellraise. Uh, uh, I remember discussing why he was doing, you know, why mm. he felt like this, and that, you know, it, it was uh, this was his determination, and you know, he just didn't want them to fuck it up anymore. Yeah, um, it's no secret that he wasn't impressed. <laughs> no, absolutely, and, it, and this really was his. Um, and I think that was a very courageous thing for him to do um, because he'd never directed a movie before. Um, and obviously he surrounded himself with really talented people mm. uh, and, and really worked hard and found a good producer in Chris Fig and uh, Bob Keen and Image Animation uh, Robin Vigeon uh, the sound guys um, the the set decorators you know everybody mm. you know he, he really did manage to surround himself with some very very talented people so that you know he, this process would run as well as possible yeah I mean it's a it, it's well. I mean, Hellraiser is is a masterpiece film, and it's like mm. an astonishingly confident film yeah, from someone who you know hadn't sort of directed a, a movie. Before. Yes, yeah. it, it, it was very interesting watching it the other night, and it was very interesting looking at the tweets that came out afterwards. <laughs> and this is a very dated movie now. It, it, I remember one tweet saying, "Yeah, here's a monster over the head." A monster from hell over the head with a milk bottle. <laughs> and I remember looking at that and thinking, God, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, it's very difficult to distance yourself from the actual process of filming and, and to, to yeah. watch it just purely as a piece of cinema. Mm. Um, gosh, it's dated. If you look at CGI now mm. um, and you look at it, it's so obviously prosthetic makeup. Um, very good prosthetic makeup. Don't get me wrong at all. Mm. You know, and the images are extraordinary. But gosh, it's really, really dated now. Yeah. Well, there are some things that I think you can't really argue with that. But if you just look at Pinhead and yeah. the Chatterer, yeah. the Chattering Cenobite, they now you could put those in a film now, and they would still yes, freak absolutely. Out. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And I, I mean, there are images in that movie, and there are moments in that movie. <laughs> talking about uh, my other half, Craig, watching the movie, um, the bit where Kirst is in the room and she opens the cupboard, and the yeah. Christ figure <laughs> falls out and he jumps and he's a bloody Kyle Barker and his jump moments. <laughs> and I feel, you know, it's not, but not just that, there's the female Cenobite coming upstairs, oh, yeah. scraping the wall, and there's blood Absolutely. coming out. Absolutely, it's room. just amazing. And, you know, the, the uh, as, as I say, I think one of the reasons why I was kind of distanced from it because we just joined the movie halfway through, you know, it, it was, it, having got into the, the plot, obviously, you know the plot. But just watching it 
as, as one will with other movies, if you join mm. halfway through, you have a different perspective. You haven't suspended your disbelief as much. Mm. It is still extraordinary. The uh, the moments, the, the whole concept of these demons who make a deal with Kirsty and then basically break it. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, she kept her side of the bargain. Um, and they still want her. Mm. And that's not fair. And then she has to fight the, you know, the Cenobite. She has to work out a way of surviving, uh, mm. basically. Uh, it's an incredibly strong story. The images are amazing. For the time, they were amazing. Thinking about this the other day, when we did the Forbidden Planet in London, mm-hmm. It wasn't in the shop that it's in now. It was in a much smaller. Sh- uh, it was in a much smaller shop, old-fashioned shop, and they had a. Um, whereas today it looks very modern. They got one. This is a real old-fashioned um, uh, building that it was in, and it had a much smaller entrance. And there were just. It was an old Victorian store. You went in. There was a central door, and then either side of it there were two windows, display windows, that were probably a couple of feet by a couple of feet. And that's where they had... And when Hellraiser came out, they took the figure, the um, uh, corpse where the maggots fall out of their mouth. Mm. They put that in the window. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, But it only lasted about a week or so before they had to take it down because of the complaints. (laughs) Um, I'm not surprised. It's fairly graphic. (laughs) It's an extraordinary graphic image for the beginning of the 1980s. Hellraiser, I still stand by completely. It's it looks dated if you compare it to something you know, having Marvel Avengers or something like that. <laughs> and, and what can yeah. be done now? Um, it's a completely different piece. Yeah. But saying that, if you were to make Hellraiser nowadays with all that modern CGI, it would feel completely different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing that really stands up with all archives work is the storytelling. Yeah. Um, the the concepts behind it, the actually, you know, when Frank goes, Jesus wept, <laughs> and you think you're about to be torn apart, and you're actually enjoying this. <laughs> yeah, um, that is a little bit freaky. <laughs> um, uh, the whole sexuality thing, and and, and, and so there was absolutely nothing like it when no. Hellraiser came out. Nothing. He, mm. really, you know, uh, Stephen King. I've the tagline. I've seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. Um, I bet he was pleased with that. <laughs> I think he was very pleased with that. I think Clive has always said he's more than just a horror writer. I mean, he is, and he's, he's, he, I think Imaginer is the line that he'd like to have yeah. on his uh, gravestone. You know, Clive is a lot more about fantasy rather than just horror. Mm. This, this is part of, you know, Clive brought that imagination to the horror field. That's what made it new and fresh. That he was bringing this other world in this and that, just that imagination. Um, I think so sometimes you get the sense that what he, what his his fantasy is other people's horror. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> Clive is a sick puppy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do hope he doesn't remind me. Yeah, we used to call it joke and tell him he was a sick puppy. Um, yeah, and, you know, he's just incredibly honest. I think this is one of the, yeah. one of the things is. In thinking about this recently is that 
we have dark thoughts. You know, human beings have dark thoughts. Clive is just terribly honest about this. Yeah. You know, it, it, whereas and there's no guilt or shame. Um, and he, he, he it's, it's as Pinhead says, you know, further or explorers in the further re- reaches of experience. He, it, Clive is always pushing the envelope, pushing boundaries. Um, in fact, that was one of the tag, the original tagline for the movie. I remember he used to have a little badge, Hellraiser, there are no limits. Mm. Um, and and uh, that's what Clive is always about, is push, keep on push, take, mm. it to, take things to their logical conclusion. So the filming of Hellraiser, you've obviously spoken about this mm. quite a lot, and it was quite a difficult process, we all know. <laughs> Just a dad. Yeah. 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 yeah, you were quite restricted, obviously, with yeah. the costume yeah. and stuff like that. But did you, I guess at the time, again, sort of asking you to look back without hindsight, did you at the time think, this is going to be worth it? This is. I mean, when you saw the Chatterer makeup, did it shock you? Were you like, wow, nothing like this has been seen before? Or, or were you kind of like, oh, this could be good, you know, maybe? I don't know if, you, I don't know if we thought about that. You know, it's the fact you're doing a movie, it's... Going around the workshops, because we used to, uh, the, the first stage in the prosthetic makeup process is uh, you have to have a body cast taken. Mm. Um, both Simon and I needed a body cast. I oh, don't think Doug had body cast. Certainly Oliver Smith had a body cast. And I know he couldn't do the, I was again listening to your podcast this morning, mm-hmm. I'd forgotten entirely that he couldn't do the head cast. Mm. They had to do both a head cast of me and they had to do a body cast of me. Um, Head cast dealt with that. It's uh, is it fairly unpleasant. Well, it's not so unpleasant. You know, if you're claustrophobic, it must be horrible. Yeah. Um, I dealt with that because um, they cover you with alginate, which goes on cold but warms up as as it as it hardens. Um, as does the, the plaster of Paris, it warms up. So it's actually not too bad an experience. <clears throat> the body cast was another matter. Um, my tip is if you want to go into doing prosthetic makeup movies, don't be a hairy person. <laughs> um, because they basically had to, had to stand upright in my underwear and then with my arms outstretched so that they could, you know, in cruciform style. They then proceeded to wrap from my thighs, just below my thighs, my entire body, arms, everything, where they were going to put the plaster, in Klingfer. Um And that was great. Covered me in plaster. The reason they had to do that was because they had to, they wanted to sculpt the, the, the leather and, and make sure the costumes were absolutely skin-tight. Um, I remember the, the worst part of it was, once I got the cast off, it was fine. But the plaster had been dropping onto my feet, and I've got hairy toes, I'm a bit like a hobbit. And having to pull the... That's the most painful thing I remember from that movie, was trying to get this plaster off my toe, my big toe, and pulling hairs out. And that was incredibly painful. Um, so, yes, I can't remember what the question was now. <laughs> well, yeah. it doesn't matter, that was a wonderful yeah, answer. Okay. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, so, I've got a question. Mm. Did you ever spend any time on the set out of makeup, just sort of being there and, and look, watching or helping out? Or? No, not really, because we were uh, remembering that 
This was filmed in Cricklewood and Dollis Hill. It was filmed in Cricklewood in a place called the Production Village. The soundstage wasn't that much larger than the torture room itself. It wasn't a huge place at all. Um, the there was just a room off to one side, which is where the where, where we were and where actors kept this kind of a green room, make come makeup room, come everything else. Um, there is you don't have observers uh, on um, a soundstage unless you really, really have to. Mm. And there's, there's a really good reason for them to be there. Mm. You want quiet apart from anything else. Um, so no, I didn't. I, I really didn't get to see much of the filmmaking process at all. Um, I do remember one morning, as, a, as an aside, where I was feeling fairly nauseous. Um, Remembering, you know, we used to start really early in the morning. I think we were we were there. Doug must have been filming. Tended to start at nine o'clock, so Doug must have been starting makeup at around about five o'clock in the morning to begin oh, with. Mm. And I think I was there not much longer. And I think I tended to stay because it was in North London. I was living in Sussex at the time, and I tended to keep out, you know, sleep on people's floors. I stayed with Jane Wildgoose, the lady who designed all the costumes. I stayed at her place quite a bit. Um, and I remember going that morning, I was just feeling nauseous, feeling really nauseous. Now, what you don't want to be is wearing false teeth and a mask and mm. vomiting into that. Oh, God. Uh, and that was my real concern. And it's like, you know, it's like, can we keep the mask off as long as possible? I'll sip water. Um, and uh, I remember just explaining this, and Jane was with me, because I always had a... a somebody looking after me um, both Simon and we always had somebody with us at all times mm. uh, just to make sure that we're because really we couldn't do much for ourselves uh, even out, even with the uh, if we were just in costume there wasn't a lot we could do for ourselves because um, they don't want you touching stuff they don't want mm. you eating food or anything um, so people there do hold glasses for us and drink from straws and so on so Jane was there, and I remember sitting off the set, um, and they just called me from the dressing room, and they had me sitting off by the side of the set, which was unusual, I couldn't work out why they were doing this. Um, but obviously everyone knew. And then Robin Vision, the, Vision, the uh, cameraman, came up, and he said, um, Jane, we understand Nick so well. Um, and Jane said, yeah, it's absolutely fine, we know what we're going to do. Um, if he gets, if he starts feeling ill, we're going to rip out the teeth and so on. Um, <laughs> don't need to worry about it. Robin said, no, 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 that's not the point. Is it? Clive says, if Nick feels sick, you've got to get him on stage in makeup because they want to film it when he vomits. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> uh, just despite them, I didn't vomit. Um, no, I, <laughs> I remember just like, yeah. You really understood your pecking order as an actor in those days. <laughs> exactly what you were there for. Oh, God. Um, very, very clear. That's brilliant. <laughs> so, yeah, no. Not, that was the only time. Okay. Not to see much going on. So, you finished Hellraiser, and, of course, the reaction was pretty good. <laughs> mm, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the extraordinary thing was that we, I know Ashley had signed a two movie deal anyway, which was fairly standard if you're doing horror movies. Mm. Um, and you know, like if you're doing a TV series in the States, it's five year deals, so you, you tend to 
So if you do have a hit on your hands, you can make sure you can keep your cast. Mm. I don't remember signing up for two movies, um, but we were actually filming, you know, more or less within 12 months, uh, we were filming the sequel, which is very unusual, because um, mm. normally it's two or three years at least before you get uh, the sequel. But there was, it, there was obviously such a buzz from the first movie. Um, I was listening to Steve Jones, the publicist, uh, the other day, and he was reminding me of what, of the efforts he'd put in, and again, this I think this is one of Steve's early movies that he was publicising it, and he did unusual things, mm. um, in that he was getting the he was getting photographs from the um, movie out there even before there was a release date. Mm. You know, there was a lot of, you know, it, it didn't just happen that yeah. it got there. there. There was a lot of work, hard work behind it. There was a lot of marketing behind it to make sure that there was a buzz out mm. there. So that when um, you know, the movie actually came up, there had been an awful lot of pre-publicity. And people had already seen Pinhead, but that was it. You know, they'd seen a few of some of the images from the movie, mm. but nobody really knew anything about it at that point. Yeah, I think that still holds true today, isn't it? I mean, anybody, even if they haven't seen the film, they go, oh, the guy with the, with the things in his head. Yeah, no, whenever I say, you know, That's you, it. yeah, I used yeah. to be an actor. What did you do? I did Hellraiser. Was, uh, I remember the guy with the pins in his head? Yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. knows, everyone knows Duncan's pinhead. But then recently I've been, um, well, just over the last couple of days, I, I was telling people I was coming to interview you who didn't really know about Hellraiser, mm. but they'd seen it and they yeah. were saying, the, the pinhead guy, and I said, no, no, this is the guy, the chattering teeth guy, and they're like, oh, you know, <laughs> they go, oh, you know, because that image is so frightening that people, anybody just goes, oh, no, <laughs> wow. It's, he really is, it really, you know, it, it's so hard to tell, but, you know, that image is just extraordinary. Yeah. And I think because I mentioned the fact that I had major surgery, mm. um, when I was 19 years old, when I say major, I was in the operating theatre for over eight hours. Um, they took pieces of bone from my hip and cut away my top jaw entirely. Oh, yeah. um, and what, to do that, basically what they do is they peel back the lips. Mm-hmm. And I remember Clive saying that one of the idea for the chattering cenobites what you know, something that had been in his mind was my description and his thought about what I must have looked like. I don't remember mentioning that to I don't remember he knew I'd had the operation, I, I talked, I told him the stories. Um, but I think he'd worked out this is, must have been what I looked like. Oh, wow, okay, under the knife, yeah. And if you know, obviously, with clamps of some form, yeah, holding me, holding my face back, um. Joe Clive, I've got the story right, but that, <laughs> I'm sure I remember this conversation with him. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, that's part of where it comes from. Um, and the fact, the fact that he's blind as well, he's just this, and the relentless chattering as well. There is something about that chattering. Mm, there uh, is. The well, it's not just that he's he looks like he's blind, but he can obviously see where he's going. So there's something going on. There's something going on, but, you know, it, it's... It's just yes. So he knows unknown. what's he's he, yeah. he's blind, but he's obviously completely aware of what's going on around him yeah. because he manages to push it Larry back. He manages to get his fingers down Kirsty's throat. Yeah. Um, how, yeah, I must have been able to see tiny 
I have no idea how I managed to do it because I really could see so very little when I had the mask on. Um, I've said this before, I said it the last time, you know, that's down to Ashley, uh, you know, the selling of that. Mm-hmm. And watching that scene again the other evening, I was thinking, God, yeah, um, it really does work. I mean, we, we said this last time, but I think the restrictions that were placed upon you work so well for the character. Yes, and, then, and, and it is about you know, that strength, that silence indefatigable strength that he's yeah. just going to keep on coming when you push yeah. you know Larry Frank yeah. back yeah I just I watch that moment again and I just think it's such a great moment because it is literally like you going no sunshine <laughs> <laughs> no way there's just no it's a slight you know, it's not as known as a dab yeah it's <laughs> yeah. not it's not there's no there's no physical strength there you know he doesn't stumble or anything yeah, yeah. it's just really obvious what's happening and yeah. why the hell do you think you're going to get away with it yeah yeah um yeah no it's a good moment good moment yeah definitely so when you went on to do hellraiser 2 was that a different feeling when you filmed that one was it a bigger production or, yeah we moved you know? from cricklewood to pinewood yeah. um you know that was <laughs> wow mm. yeah. gosh gosh we're at pinewood god we're at real st- gosh there's the 007 studio yeah. um it was, yeah, completely different. For you. Obviously, Clive wasn't as involved. It was Tony Randall who was directing it. Uh, Clive hadn't written it. It was Pete Atkins who who wrote it. Um, it was a very, it was a different movie. We there was a different approach to Chatterer. Um, the, the, there was, you know, the, the the revealing of the eyes because the idea was to make him more athletic too if you like, make him more of a family dog, make him more aggressive, make him to be more physical. Mm. Mm. I, I think in retrospect, I think, it, funnily enough, it lost, you know, it lost a lot of the power from the first movie because of that, mm. you know, as, as a character. Um, he, he doesn't actually do that much physically. Those scenes were shot, but not actually used in the movie, where he's kind of running down corridors and so on. Um, he's chasing people. Oddly enough, I think that actually makes him a weaker character because he's actually ha- as if he actually has to physically get involved. Mm-hmm. You yeah. understand what I'm trying to say? You know, it's like it does become a question of physical strength, whereas before there was just so much stillness and obviously much power in mm-hmm. that stillness. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it was a sort of um, yeah, it was a bigger deal this time. Completely much different deal. I remember. I don't have it any longer. I'm sure, but I remember. It, I remember walking down a corridor in Pinewood Studios and seeing my name on my dressing room door, <laughs> and just being completely blown away by it because <laughs> it was hand lettered. Um, it was a it was a card. It was beautiful. It was beautiful calligraphy, um, and it was hand lettered. And it was it, it was a dressing room with my name on it, and <laughs> I was so chuffed. Um, I can't don't even remember if I don't think Michelle. I don't because th- we did Nightbreed at uh, Pinewood as well, um, and again I don't. I, we definitely didn't share the dressing room for Nightbreed. I can't remember. Possibly did with Hellraiser. Uh, I mean, that's one of those moments, you saying you've seen your name. I mean, particularly, I can understand from an actor's point of view, mm. those are the glorious kind of moments, because it's so hard to get work as an actor. Yeah, you know? no, absolutely. And, it, and you know, here, you know um, and it just, well, not by fluke, obviously, nobody casts their best mate, because if they don't think, you know, in a major movie, if they think they can't do the work. Yeah. Um, but it, 
I think one of the things that really stayed was the fact that during the first movie, obviously the Cenobites particularly, we got to know each other very, very well. Because mm. um, we, we, less so with Grace, unfortunately, but uh, Doug, Simon, myself, uh, the guys from Image Animation uh, particularly, we we got on really well and we've, we formed some really good friendships. Um, Jeff Portis, uh, Roy Puddyfoot particularly, were kind of great mates of mine. Um, and that obviously went through all three movies. Mm. Uh, and I think that in terms of the experience of doing Hellraiser 2 as opposed to uh, number one was that was still there. Um, yeah. Otherwise, it was more or less the same. I couldn't see what was going on. Um, <laughs> I was, you know, makeup was put on elsewhere, taken down to set, um, blind. There was, oh, there was one story um, I think I've not told recently. Was um, when we were doing the entrance for Hellraiser Two, uh, where the Cenobites come through the wall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, great moment, um, and we have bright lights behind us. So that basically uh, meant that we were standing in front of these huge spotlights. You know, the thing that they used to use to, in the Second World War, I reckon. The these, yeah, these, these <laughs> six-foot lights, basically. Um, or what it, what it felt like um, behind me. And I remember standing in front of this um, and beginning to feel rather warm. Because I'm still in the light of there and, the, and the, the, the makeup and so on with this light. And um, Roy Puddyfoot came up and tapped me on the shoulder and he just said, Nick, are you feeling warm? I said, yeah, a bit. He said, I think I'm going to move you because you're smouldering. (laughs) 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 So, yeah, they they, they moved me a little bit further away. (laughs) And then just put me back in when they actually definitely needed me to go. uh, Although flaming chatter would look Yeah, flaming chatter would have looked, yeah. It shows what a great actor you were. You were really into it. Yeah, I was really into it. The smoke yeah. was coming oh, off you. God. Going yeah, yeah. I don't know if it, yeah, it would be interesting. I suspect, I don't know. Because I remember when we were wearing the, um, the costumes, the leather, to make sure they were always shiny, they weren't polished. They just used to rub us down with uh, oil. Mm. Uh, and, well, baby oil, I suspect. Uh, yeah, it would have been baby oil. It might have been that just... Mm-hmm. away but um, smouldering sounds yeah <laughs> so you nearly got set on fire and then <coughs> at the end you got a chain a hook in your mouth and I, at the end I got a chain in my mouth yeah, oh. a hook in my mouth yeah 12 inch rusty hook oh, um, and I've told the story before that, you know, basically um, it's just one of those things you cannot recreate uh, one of those things entirely um, unforeseen it, it, it wasn't staged and of course the the real disappointment for everybody is the camera didn't catch it. Mm. Um, you know, you can just about see. I remember in the rushes that you could just about see the hook coming in, and, and it it's swinging round. You know, to be able to do that, it is actually almost a horizontal uh, angle to go into the mouth, which is strange considering it must, it must the the chain itself is hanging from. 
Um, so yeah, and that meant you know staying in costume to go to the hospital. Wow. Um, they said that the, re- the only reason for doing that was because they reckon you got seen faster if you were still in costume. <laughs> um, it was more of an emergent. That didn't actually seem to make any effort. I seem to remember waiting for ages and ages and ages before I got a tetanus shot or anybody took it seriously. Um, so just for our listeners who aren't sure, that happened at the very end of the movie when you were your character was impaled against the pillar when you were killed right. by Chinar. That's right, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, and, that um, so at that same moment in the film, it's revealed that... You, the chattery character, was a little boy. In yeah, the films. yeah, just, just, just not fair, really. Had um, so wanted to actually appear on the, in a movie with my face, my real mm. face. Um, and I remember reading that in the script and going, "You bastard!" <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, and I think people are uh, asking questions. You know, a kid in hell. I think it's Pete uh, Atkins and uh, Tony Randall, the director, and they're really playing with the idea of a child's innocence. Mm. Um, there is something, and to be honest, it, it comes on from the first movie as well. Um, the Cenobites have every intention of taking Kirsty, and she just opened the box by mistake. Mm. That was her only crime, if you like. That was the only thing. Um, and it's, it, it plays in, in the second movie, it's a child, who, you know, the, the, the small blonde girl who, um, uh, Imogen Borman, mm-hmm. uh, who, who's, you know, um, has got this, this kid who's really good with puzzles to open up mm-hmm. the box, because um, he can't do it himself. So there is something there about, you know, life isn't fair. Um, if, you, if you do the wrong thing, and there's no sense of karma here. You just happen to be in the wrong place, wrong time, and you get monsters coming through your wall. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, we we've talked about this before, but it, it it is a very striking image of it being a kid. Yeah. When you watch it for the first time, yeah. it is quite like yeah. And I was like, oh, I quite like it being a kid. But then, when you think of it from the actor's point of view, from your perspective, you you want to own that character. Oh yeah. You know? It's it's your character. And, um, and especially from the actor's point of view at that yes. time of wanting to just get your face in the film after all the hard yes, work you absolutely. put in. Yes, I mean, absolutely. I suppose from an actor owning a character, you never really own a character. Mm. You know, particularly in horror... Well, Doug has obviously owned Pinhead up until very, very recently. Mm. Um, uh, Freddy Krueger... Um, but those characters, you, the, the makeup is is very strong, but you can still see their features in their face, yes, so you can yeah, tell who yes, the actor is. Yes, yeah, um, that's certainly not true under Chatterer. Um, <laughs> no, and it, so I kind of never really and, and Chatterer's gone on to ha- have a, a kind of a life as either as a half formed human being uh, or a, a Chatterer dog or something. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it is uh, interesting, but I, I think. The whole idea of a child who grows up in hell. Because he's a child when he opened the box. Mm. But at the end, when you meet him, he's an adult. Mm. So, I mean, that child grew up in hell. Mm. And I remember you know, there is actually something that I think is, is, there's a story there. <laughs> to what it must have been like um, to actually grow up. And, you know, yeah. What sort of ner- uh, wet nurse did you have? And we know too on for a wet nurse as a child, but what sort of teacher? What's you know? Was it like for a child growing up in the in the labyrinth that's revealed in the second movie? 
Well, maybe you could write that. As I a could, yeah, yeah, as a companion <laughs> piece. Yeah, something. Yeah, I'll to, go back to that. To connect, we, we just to mention now, I guess it's a bit out of order, mm. but um, and out of sequence, should I say, um, sure. you wrote Look, See. Yes. Um, about was, that. Was that your reaction to... That. Kind of me being a spoiled brat, slightly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, kind of yes, but also just I. I still can't remember the exact conversations that must have gone round um, at the time. Obviously, I felt very strongly about it, um, and slightly dissatisfied. Um, and was, I just yeah. Was it a story that you had and you wanted to write, or was it a commission for the magazine? It was a story I wanted to write. Did I persuade... I think I must have persuaded the editor that he wanted to publish it. <laughs> um, I can't remember if he... You know, they said, you know, would you like to write? I, I can't remember the conversations okay. now. But, uh, yeah, it, it, and I enjoyed writing it, and it was a fu- it's a fun piece. Um, yeah, at the, I mean, at the end of the, the last paragraph, yeah. it's very much saying... Movie studios don't always get it right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I and I was taking a pop at Chris Fig and so on. <laughs> the temerity. Um, yeah, no, I must I must have felt really really strongly to write things like that. Um, yeah, because it's it's definitely quite. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no holds barred, I guess. But, but but again, I think it was just part of the fun of it. You know? Yeah, and, and it, it's. There was a definite feeling about all three movies. You know, they, they still cast me in Nightbreed. You know, was Chris Fick producing again? So he obviously didn't take it too seriously. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought it was, you know, it was about what making movies is about and, and mm-hmm. movies. And, yeah. And well, I think that's what's great about that story. I mean, I really enjoyed reading it and I think you wrote it so well because it is quite strong in its intent, but it's also fun. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, can't yeah, read it and yeah, go, oh, well, I'm really offended by that. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, was written, it was written as a joke, you know, as a joke and as a nod and as a fun. And also just to kind of guess, you know, this was me beginning to start writing. So, uh, yeah. To be continued.